Welcome to 90% Mental. I'm your host, Grant Parr, and thank you for joining us for our 63rd episode. As a mental performance coach, I have the honor to work with athletes to enhance their mental game and give them the tools to unlock their full potential. The reason why I created 90% Mental is to bring awareness around mental performance within sport by interviewing athletes and coaches so they can share their stories and perspectives on the mental game. So today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is leadership. And I have Alan Stein Jr., motivational speaker, coach, and author of an incredible book called Raise Your Game. I promise you, you will walk away from this interview inspired, motivated, and educated on what it takes to be a great leader. The power of Alan's message regarding leadership lies within his energy and experiences as a coach. And I cannot wait to share this incredible interview with you and the value that you will get by reading his book, Raise Your Game. So without further ado, let's go talk to Alan. Hey, Alan, how are you? I am fantastic. How are you doing, Grant? Man, I'm I'm awesome. I feel great this morning and I'm so excited to have you on my show to talk about a lot of great things that you and I are very passionate about. And, uh, you know, which we're, we're going to get into today is we're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about your book that just came out last week called Raise Your Game. And we're just going to talk a little bit about your background as a motivational speaker, um, a person who affects lives on a daily basis and is doing a lot of work with companies affecting culture and mindset. So just really excited to have you on my show today. Equally excited. We're going to have a good time. I love it. I love it. All right. Before we get into our our interview here, I wanted to ask you a question that I, I love asking. It sets the tone of my show, and it's about mental toughness. So what does mentally tough mean to you? Well, I know we're going to be in alignment on this because we share a, a mutual friend and colleague and mentor in Graham Betchart, and, uh, and Graham was really the one that, that reframed how I defined mental toughness, and it's been over a decade now, and, and I'll use his terminology. It's the ability to play present or live present or coach present, or, you know, you can fill in the first word, but it's the ability to stay in the present moment, uh, and block out all distractions and, and, you know, be focused on what's now, you know, to be, to win the moment, you got to be in the moment. And that's, that's what I believe is true mental toughness in any area of life. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I'm a disciple of his work. So I, I agree with that a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So before we get into, leadership in your book. I want to talk about a little bit about your journey and how your journey has led to where you're at today. And, and after being a, an elite basketball trainer slash coach for the last 15 years where you've worked with the best of the best, what motivated you to become a motivational speaker and work with companies to enhance their culture and, and affect mindset? Honestly, I was just ready for a change. Mm. You know, uh, basketball was my my first identifiable passion. I fell in love with basketball at probably five or six years old. And uh, at the time of this recording, um, a few days away from being 43 years old. So almost the game has been an important part of my life for almost four decades, almost my entire life. And will always be indebted to the game and will always want to serve coaches and players. Um, but just a couple of years ago, I was ready for a change. You know, most of my time and energy and focus was on helping basketball players, mostly at the youth and high school level, uh, run faster and jump higher and improve their athleticism. And then it was also to teach coaches how to teach those same traits to their players. And, and I really enjoyed that. But after doing that for almost 20 years, I was just ready for a new challenge. And, and I wanted to take all of the amazing things that I had learned from some elite coaches and players and, and translate that over to a new audience. And, you know, having been an entrepreneur my entire life and run my own training businesses, you know, the, the business world and corporate world, which I'm saying in air quotes on an audio podcast, uh, just seemed like the most likely target. And that's, mm. that was really the impetus for that was to take all of this stuff that I was so passionate and excited about and aim it at a different audience so that hopefully they'd, they'd get some value as well. Absolutely. And, and how much of your experience as an athlete and also as a coach got you prepared for this moment? I would say a hundred percent of it or 99%. I guess nothing's 100%, but, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, 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 the crossover between sports and business and even life, if we want to get kind of cliche and corny, I mean, it's, these things are all connected. I mean, there is absolutely zero doubt that 
working on to become the best basketball performance coach I can be has made me a better father to my three children. It's made me a better business owner in my speaking business. It's made me better at being able to teach and instruct and, and, and share with businesses. These things are all related because they're, they're frameworks, they're mindsets. I mean, yes, obviously, uh, from a tactical standpoint, what it takes to win a basketball game and what it takes to have a thriving business on a tactical standpoint are going to be very different. But the underlying principles and strategies and mindsets and and the rituals and the routines and the disciplines required, that stuff is all the same. And, you know, the things that have made a player like Kevin Durant be an elite basketball player are the same traits that make any elite CEO an elite CEO. Absolutely. I mean, I agree 100 percent. Absolutely. You know, when we start talking about leadership here, you know, when you look at words like love and passion, we, we all generally speak and we, we have a good understanding what love and passion means, but they all mean, those words mean a little bit differently to all of us. It's our, our own internal representation. So when you think of the word leadership, which you and I know what leadership is, what it looks like and what it feels like, but what does leadership mean to you? Leadership is simply having the desire and, and having the purpose to have a positive influence over others and, and being able to fill other people's buckets and, and get other people to do things and to go places that they either wouldn't want to or would have difficulty getting to on their own. And uh, I believe uh, taking a page out of Simon Sinek's book that leadership is a choice, that you choose whether or not to be a leader from whatever position you're in. Uh, there's a distinct difference between given, being given a power of authority and having a certain title and actually being an effective leader. So uh, if we use a basketball team as an example, yeah, you've got your head coach, you've got your assistant coaches, you've got your usually a star player or two, you've got your starting five, you've got 15 players, you've got some managers. Every single one of those people needs to make the decision to be a leader, even though their roles are all vastly different. Um, their contributions to the team will all be vastly different. Their authority is vastly different. But every single one of those players can choose whether or not to be a leader because they choose whether or not to have a positive impact and influence over everybody else in the program. You know, and I want to stick on that on that quote because it's great because I actually have used it a few times in some presentations. But, you know, when, when Simon Sinek talks about leadership is a choice, it's not a title, it's not a position, it's not a rank, it's a conscious choice. How often do you see when you're, when you're working with athletes, coaches, and, comp and corporate professionals get caught up in the, the title and in the rank? And, and can that be dangerous for a leader? Oh, it's, it's absolutely lethal. And it, it's lethal in a few ways. One, uh, when someone is given power of authority or a title, um, that can get them uh, to either lack humility, uh, that can get them to get somewhat complacent. It's like, I don't need to work on my leadership skills because they have to listen to me because I'm the boss or I'm the whatever. Uh, that's definitely a, a dangerous slope. And then on the other end is, is someone could feel rather uh, confined and feel like they have to defer. And well, I guess I'm not a leader because I don't have you know, VP next to my name, or I don't have the corner office. So I guess it's not my place to lead because no one gave me the position of authority. So it can be dangerous uh, on either side of the coin. That's a great point. Great point. You know, and I've read a lot of your blogs and, and also there's a lot of um, YouTube videos out there and you talk a lot about attributes of a good leader. And I know there's a lot of them out there, but from your perspective, what, what makes a good leader? Here's something that's rather cool. So I consider myself a student. I mean, I'm, I'm a student of the game. I'm a student in speaking. I'm a student of life. And anytime I do uh, a corporate talk, um, I always try to arrive early. I try to watch other speakers. I mean, I want to get a pulse of the room. I want to get a pulse of the group. Uh, now, I've already done all of my, my homework. I mean, I've had a pre-event call. They've filled out a pre-event questionnaire. I've, I've already built a customized talk. I've done everything that I can do to prepare, but I still love to go early. And I just flew back from Chicago this morning. I had a flight canceled home last night, but uh, I spoke in Chicago yesterday. And the night before, I went in and watched uh, the headlining keynote speaker. I was doing kind of a breakout session. And uh, her name was Ann Hardy. Uh, we've never met, and I don't know if she listened to your show or not, but if so, she was absolutely phenomenal. She's one of the best speakers I've seen. And what I loved about her, and that's why I want to give her credit, was she asked people to list the traits of the best boss that, that they've either had or could envision. 
and we just wanted them to, to just do a total brain dump and list all of the trades. And, and in this case, boss would be synonymous with leader, at least for where she was going. Right. And then she said, okay, now write down a list of the worst traits of the worst boss that you've had or could envision and write all of those things down. And then she said, okay, of all, everything that you wrote down, and some people probably wrote 20 on each side, how many of those have to do with IQ and how many of those have to do with EQ? And without exception, 99% of them all have to do with emotional intelligence. Mm. Yes, if someone wrote down you know, intelligence as one of the traits, then that's an exception. But everything else had to do with emotional intelligence, empathy, compassion, vision, self-awareness. You know, uh, conviction, all of these different things, and so, so really, uh, I think the most important trait for a leader to have is high self-awareness and high emotional uh, IQ and emotional fitness, so that you can understand and read people. You understand your own emotions. You understand the emotions of others. Uh, you acknowledge that people have different learning styles and personality styles and work styles. Like it's it's all of that together. And, you know, I, I believe, you know, in education, but I do think that our, our school systems and our curriculums from kindergarten through higher education are targeted way more towards IQ instead of EQ. And that's a problem uh, because uh, many times the best leaders that I've ever been around, and I put myself in this boat, not to call myself the best leader, but I use myself as an example. I don't have a really off the charts, high IQ. I mean, I'm not a dummy but I don't have a very high IQ. I've worked really hard and will continue to work hard to develop what I believe is a very high EQ. And to me, that's what's most important for a leader. Oh, I, I agree. I, you know, it's really interesting that my whole life, um, whether if it's in athletics or in my corporate life, uh, I, I always, always prided myself to be a leader. I mean, I, I felt like, you know, we always hear about the, you know, are you a born leader or do you, or do you work your tail off to be a leader? And, you know, and there's different perspectives on that, but I, I didn't know until about maybe 10 to 12 years ago, the word about EQ and emotional intelligence and it real, and I'm very kinesthetic. So I feel, I feel, um, which can get in the way sometimes, but I feel people, I feel their expressions, I feel their energy and it's helped me to realize I'm like, man, one of the reasons why I was a pretty good leader is because of the EQ component. Because I, I could tap into energy and I can tap into to being empathetic and, and all of the things that you're talking about. So I agree with you. I think EQ is it's becoming more prevalent, but I think that companies need to start tapping into it and training people to to actually increase their EQ. Absolutely. And that's the part we're not doing in, in the school systems. And, and I say that because, you know, as I'm sitting here in my home office, I'm, I'm looking at a huge screensaver on my Thunderbolt display of my three kids. And to me, I mean, I've got eight year old twin sons that are in third grade and I have a, uh, a six year old daughter who's in first. And, you know, I see what they're being taught in school. And I'm, I'm not saying to diminish the things that they're being taught, but they're not being taught emotional intelligence in school with the same emphasis that they're being taught IQ. So as a father, that's the stuff that I really, really emphasize. And, uh, and that's to me, one of the best gifts I can give them is to teach and model having high emotional intelligence. And that's part of the problem. You know, we, we coaches say all the time, like we expect, you know, I expect you guys to be better leaders, but no one's teaching kids how to be leaders. No one's giving them the, you know, the, the fundamentals of what it takes to be a leader and talking about emotional intelligence and, and praising it. I mean, we all know as coaches and as leaders, that which gets praised gets repeated. Well, let's make sure we're, you know, we're praising being a good leader and being a good teammate just as much as we're praising, you know, scoring a layup. I mean, these, these things, it's, it's, it's vital to do. And I agree that the corporate world is now leaning towards you know, putting a value on EQ, but only the really smart ones are actually doing leadership training and leadership and, and emotional intelligence training. And, and uh, thankfully, I mean, that's what keeps guys like you and I in business is companies bringing us in to help facilitate that. But, but it's absolutely a requirement. I mean, if, if it's something that you want to see improved, then you have to have, uh, you know, put some resources towards that improvement. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. You know, there's another component or attribute that I want to talk about and it's vulnerability. And I think even though there's been a lot of incredible things I've learned from Graham, uh, but he taught me a phrase about vulnerability you might have heard, and it's victory goes to the vulnerable. And, you know, when you think about vulnerability, 
it's the birthplace of change. It's it's a beautiful thing when you can be vulnerable. It can be a little bit. Uh, there's a gray area of being vulnerable within the corporate space, depending mm-hmm. on how people you know use your energy and your words when you're being vulnerable. But how much when you when you're looking at vulnerability, how much does being vulnerable play into being a good leader? Once again, it's absolutely vital. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Dr. Brene Brown and, and have read and, and listened and watched to so much of her stuff. And I kind of consider her the the expert on vulnerability. So if any of your listeners uh, haven't checked Dr. Brene Brown out, she's got a great TED talk and, and so forth. Um, you know, I believe vulnerability is kind of the cousin of humility and empathy and compassion and grace. I mean, all of these these spokes on the wheel of emotional intelligence uh, kind of go together. Uh, and vulnerability, I mean, there's a few different ways to look at it. Uh, one, and I know I, I keep going back to what's taught at young ages and what's not, I do think one of the systemic problems in our country is males in particular are, are taught that vulnerability is a weakness and that you shouldn't be vulnerable and stop crying. And and even, I mean, I hear, and I'm only really sensitive to this because I have, I have a daughter, but people say things like, you know, stop crying, stop acting like a girl. It's like, that is... I mean, it's atrocious Mm. to equate crying with being a female, you know, as a, instead of being an outlet, a healthy outlet for a very healthy emotion, that's a major, major problem. So yeah, vulnerability is incredibly important. And to dispel this myth that being vulnerable is a weakness, it's absolutely incorrect. Vulnerability is one of the best strengths that you can have. And and a perfect example would be, you know, if, if this was taking place 500 years ago and and you and I were two knights and we were going to joust and, and fight with swords or whatever, I don't have the terminology, (laughs) but you're wearing full armor from head to toe, from your shoelaces to the, the big iron mask that covers your face. And you've got your sword and I'm standing there completely stark naked and I've got my sword and we're going to fight. I'm absolutely 100% vulnerable at that point. Who's tougher? Like right. I am. Yeah. I'm way tougher. You're the one that's got to stand behind all of the armor and all of the, you know, and I'm not. I'm I'm fully exposed and I'm ready to go into battle. And and that's that's kind of an example I look at and and another one, I don't know if this will resonate with your listeners or not, but um I'm a huge Eminem fan. Not necessarily on the content side, but I just think he's a a wordsmith. Oh I my think gosh. he's a, a lyrical genius. Yep. So of course I'm a huge Eight Mile fan. And really the end of the movie, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> when when he basically in a rap battle showed ultimate vulnerability by going up and going first and made fun of himself before the other guy could make fun of him, and then he ended up winning because he just let everything out in the open. And that's what vulnerability is. It's having the security and confidence to arm other people with stuff about you that they could use to hurt you, but you're okay with it because you're that secure, you're that confident, and you're that resilient and gritty that it will be okay. And, and I don't think you can have true love without being completely vulnerable. you know. And that's one of the reasons mm. I think intimate relationships, there's an issue because people don't fully put their guard down because they're afraid if they do, that other person will have something that could really hurt them. And for me, you know, I went through a divorce a few years ago, a very amicable divorce. My ex and I get along great now. We make excellent co-parents. Um, but I went through a couple years of, of intense therapy and counseling. And the best reward I got of it was a new appreciation and a, a stronger sense of being vulnerable. Uh, I had so many insecurities and so many things that I was so scared of and living in so much fear that if if someone found these things out that they could really use them to hurt me. And now I'm not apathetic, but I don't care. I lead with them. Yeah. Like I, I, I have some strengths and I have some endearing qualities. I know that I also have a whole litany of, of weaknesses and, and insecurities and fears. But if I want to have a strong relationship with someone, whether it's my children or, you know, a future partner, I, I share those things. And if they choose to use them to hurt me, well, you just qualified yourself as not being in my life, so that actually made my job a hell of a lot easier. Right. <laughs> so much appreciated, and and I, I just you know there there is a strength in vulnerability, and it's probably the most freeing thing that I've ever done is to face my insecurities and fears. I still have them. I mean, I'm not a robot. Oh yeah. But I don't I don't let them control me the way that I used to, and and life is one thousand times better now. I love it. Yeah, I love it, and. I, I preach it all day long, uh, especially when I'm working with with younger athletes at the high school and collegiate level. I ask them, you know, like, you know, what does vulnerability mean to you? Uh, and a lot of times, like, oh, it's weak. 
Mm-hmm. And, and to get them to shift their mindset and, and to really show them how powerful it is, it's, it's a really cool experience. And, you know, there's, there's a few things that have come up for me just listening to you. You know, I, I've been in so many boardrooms throughout my life where I've been scared to raise my hand just, just to get involved in the conversation because I didn't want to be vulnerable. I've actually been a part of some, um, some just strategy meetings where someone had said, I wasn't going to bring it up because I was afraid that you guys wouldn't like the idea, but I said, screw it. And they did. And it was like this, like it, the idea changed the trajectory of the meeting and what we're going to do as a group. And it was like a beautiful idea. So it's, it's getting over those fears and, and also getting over the idea of, like you said earlier about vulnerability, is it, is it weak or is it strength? I mean, I was working with a football player uh, years ago, and because he had a bad experience, he just he had a bad game, and I asked him, how are you feeling right now? And he goes, I feel feminine. And wow. I'm like, well, what does that mean to you? You know, and we went through this whole list of things. This 17-year-old boy thinks that being feminine is weak, and I'm like, we're all, we all have a feminine side. We got to tap into that, you know, and teaching kids that it's okay to be feminine. It doesn't, doesn't it, you know, we, and we have to educate them on it, but it's just, there's a great opportunity to affect people, uh, their lives and the way they look at being vulnerable. Oh, for sure. Well, you know, as you were saying that, I mean, you said so many insightful things, but it, it brought up two things that, and I just took a couple notes here. Uh, one, uh, we, we've been talking about emotional intelligence and what a lot of people deem those qualities, they call them soft skills. Yeah. And I can't stand that name. As someone that loves terminology um, and vernacular, I cannot stand the term soft skills for a couple reasons. One, most people also equate soft with weakness. So that's where this problem gets perpetuated is you're kind of developing weak skills if they're soft. Uh, the other reason I don't like it is most people tend to equate soft with easy and fluffy and uh, emotional intelligence, these skills are the hardest skills to develop. There's nothing easy about them. I mean, right. uh, technical skills are much easier to teach. If I was putting together any team uh, or any business, I'm looking for people with very high EQs and I will teach them the tactical portion of what it is that they need to do their job really, really well. So, so one is, uh, I don't like soft skills. I believe it was Seth Godin, if I'm not mistaken. I think he wrote a, a blog about that and he wanted to come up with a new name and he calls them real skills, which I love. Mm. So instead of calling them soft skills, they're real skills because those are the skills that you need to actually function at a high level uh, in any capacity in this world. Uh, the other thing when you were speaking that it made me think of, and, and this is this is something I've had to do a lot of internal work to rewire myself, but this concept of rejection, which is something all people are in fear of to some degree, it's really just a made up mindset. I mean, you saying you were, you were afraid to raise your hand, which I have total empathy for, uh, because probably you were worried about, well, what if you said something and you look stupid or what if you said something and whatever it may be. And those are very natural and on many levels, understandable feelings, but rejection in and of itself is usually made up. And here's the example I use. I can give you two different examples. One, um, let's just say there's a, a, Well, you speaking, criminy, I'm a professional speaker. Why would I go away from that? So there's a (laughs) conference coming up and I apply, I want to apply to speak at that conference. It's, It's a great conference. I think I'd be a good fit for it. Well, at this moment, I am not the keynote speaker for that conference. So I submit my materials and I do a video and I submit my resume and I send them my headshot and I send them all this and their committee looks and they hire you instead of me. I'm still not the keynote speaker. I'm not any worse than I was before. I'm exactly where I was before. Nothing has changed. The only thing that would change would be if I allowed that to drop me back and make me regress and move back. If all of a sudden I started going, you know, oh, well, I guess I'm not as good a speaker as Grant. They picked him. Man, I suck. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Uh, Or I I do something else, you know, uh, F them, forget them. If they don't want me, that's their loss. I'm way better. I shouldn't even applied to that conference. I'm better than that. All of those emotions, they don't serve any purpose. Those are the, those are the things that make it destructive. I wasn't the keynote speaker and I'm still not the keynote speaker. And I laugh because, you know, now that I'm divorced and I'm in the single world, I I take the same approach to dating. Like, okay, I don't have a date with this hot girl on Friday. And if I ask her out and she says, no, 
I still don't have a date with this hot girl on Friday. Nothing in my life has gotten worse. It's the exact same as long as I don't allow it to erode my confidence and erode the value that I would bring to the table. And uh, now I'm human. I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't sting for a moment if she says no or if the conference selects somebody else. But I have the awareness now that I can quickly get back to the baseline and go, Alan, you're fine. You're just like you were before. Just move them. It's another one. There's going to be another hot girl coming along and there's yep. going to be another conference coming along. There's always another bus and, um, and just move from there. And, uh, and I certainly hope I didn't sound chauvinistic when I'm saying hot girl. I'm, I'm, I mean that in the most sincere way possible. Absolutely. It's not, it's not like that, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's really how I, I try to reframe it. And sometimes that's much easier than others, but, but you know, as a professional speaker, I mean, it sucks when you want to speak at an event and they don't want you to speak. Like, you know, it's, it's always oh, yeah. funny because, because people say, you know, well, it's business. It's not personal. First of all, that's BS because everything is all interlaced and it's tied together. There's always going to be some aspect of it being personal. There's always going to be some aspect of it being business. And now I just laugh because as you very well know, professional speaking, I mean, that's incredibly personal. You're um, telling me that you don't want my face and the words that come out of it to be on your stage. How could I not take that personal? That's the most personal thing there is. <laughs> However, right. I recognize that not everything is a good fit. And, you know, and you always take the high road and you take it with class. And, and but that that mind shift and that new perspective on rejection has helped me tremendously and saved me a lot of heartache. You know, it, I, I love everything you were talking about because it. It took me, it took me the last, maybe last 10 to 12 years for me to kind of, to really just feel good when something didn't go my way or I was rejected for whatever reason. And, um, it, it, I just, I've learned the tools as I've gotten wiser and older, but I think as I've been doing more of this job as a mental performance coach, you know, I'm teaching uh, all about control the controllables and, yeah, baby. and it's, and it's really, I'm freed when when I'm my, I get that initial emotional charge and then I realize, can I control it? Nope. Move on. It's like, yeah. and it's made it, the switch is easy now. It's like, I'm so much freer. I don't have this baggage that I'm, that I'm creating. Uh, I, I call it actually not, not to get you know crass, but the emotional bag of shit. Like when yeah. you start to get rejected or you start to put mistakes and you, and you haven't let go of that, you're just carrying this big bag of shit around and it gets pretty shitty. And it yeah. gets pretty heavy. And so I've just learned how to just control the controllables, you know? Next, next play, baby. Next play. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I commend you. And, and again, we don't play the comparison game. And, and jealousy is one of the emotions that I don't know that it ever serves a positive purpose. I understand the premise behind it. And I understand why uh, we all feel it innately. But I don't think it ever helps. So I, I don't use the terminology that I'm jealous of you. But I will say that if... It, we're in a perfect world. I wish I would have come to that conclusion 10 to 12 years ago because I only came to it about three or four years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm about to turn 43 and I say with, with a laugh, tongue in cheek, I mean, I spent the first 38 or 39 years of my life like an ape. I mean, I'm like a gorilla <laughs> and only the last few do I believe I've acquired the perspective and the self-awareness uh, and the clarity to be able to do that. And, you know, perfect example of what you just said, because uh, it's very familiar with me here in the Washington DC area is traffic. Like oh, you yeah. can pretty much guarantee you're going to get stuck in traffic at some point, especially if you work a typical job during typical rush hour and look at how many people allow themselves to get completely bent out of shape over traffic. They actually have a negative impact on their mood and their life and the way they treat other human beings based on traffic. And I was one of those people. I mean, it used to make my blood pressure rise. I'm honking the horn. You know, I mean, and now when does that ever serve you in a positive way? When have you ever honked the horn, given someone the finger, and all of a sudden traffic just opens up and you can just <laughs> clearly sail to where you're going? It never happens. It literally serves you zero purpose. And why? Because you don't control that. So, you know, focus. And, and I'm from the belief that the only things we can control are attitude and effort. So that's really where I put put all of my eggs? Sure. Am I giving the best effort I'm capable of? And am I having the most appropriate and best attitude possible at this given time? And those are what, what I aim to control and everything else. I let it go. 
Uh, I'll say this, and I don't say this to pat myself on the back. I say it because I actually took it as a very meaningful compliment. Um, I was ru- I got done speaking yesterday. I'm rushing in a cab uh, to Midway Airport in Chicago, and while I'm in the cab on the way to the airport, I get a notification that the flight's been canceled. Um, so I, I tell the cab driver, I'm like, well, I guess just keep driving. Let me try to call Southwest and figure this out. And I call and I speak to this lady who was very lovely and she did the best she could to help me out. All the remaining flights that night were sold out. Uh, and then she booked me on the very first flight the next morning, which was this morning. And, you know, while I'm talking to her and, and then I told the guy, I was like, well, looks like I'm not getting home tonight. Uh, do you know of any airports? I mean, airports, do you know of any hotels near the airport? And he's like, yeah, there's a great merit. And, and we had this nice dialogue and he said, sir, I got to tell you, that might be the most positive perspective that I've ever heard from anyone ever. You know, usually when that happens, people are getting all bent out of shape. And I just said, well, how does that serve me or you if I don't put on my happy face? Like, it doesn't get me home any quicker. Right. All it's going to do is ruin my evening. Why do I want to ruin my evening? It's my evening. <laughs> and I, I, I was very thankful that he, he said that, that's you know, cool. not because of anything special I was doing, but that he just recognized that, you know, that's probably a better approach to take. So that was that was kind of cool, something that really literally just happened uh, last night. I, I love it. And little things like that, I call them the emotional hurricanes and you know, sometimes you can get really pissed off inside or you can get pissed off on the outside just on circumstances that are out of your control and people just are in the effect and they get swooped up in this hurricane or you can sit in the middle of it in the eye of the hurricane where it's calm and mm-hmm. you can and you can create your own your own paradigm. You can be positive and you can put your, you and I loved how you said it was it's my evening. Like we forget that we have an evening. We forget that yeah. you know, there's more time that we can actually be positive. So that's a, I love that perspective. That's great. But I, but I can't stress enough two things. One, uh, that just happened to catch me at a good moment because I was on a high because I, I, I felt that I did a really nice job at the speaking engagement before. There are still some other times that it might take me 20 to 30 seconds to get to that centered, happy place. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm thinking the same thing other people are thinking, you know, when your flight gets canceled, like, oh, son of a, oh, mother. And <laughs> so it takes me a second. So uh, I'm, I'm incredibly fallible, just like everybody listening to this. And as I already told you, for the first 38 or 39 years of my life, he would not have given me that compliment because I would have been so angry and pissed off and, and you name the adjective in the back of the cab and it wouldn't have, and it wouldn't have helped. So, um, so anyone listening to this, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm by no means a saint and I by no means have this whole thing figured out. I'm just further along than I was a few years ago. And I guarantee Grant, if you and I connect in a year from now, I'll be further along then than I am now because I'm conscious of this. I'm aware of this and I'm doing the internal work to make this happen. And that's where I'm thankful that even if I get bent out of shape for 15 seconds, I get myself back to center very quick instead of being bent out of shape for the next 15 hours. Oh man. I love it. It's just self-awareness. And we, as we grow and sometimes they're, you know, younger, the younger generation can adapt and adopt, you know, self-awareness at a younger age. But as we grow and we get older, we, we kind of, we develop those skills to kind of drop into that space of self-awareness, which allows us to be, you know, allows us to make better decisions and allows us to be centered. And, and when we think about, you know, being centered and breathing and mindfulness and all these mental performance strategies like meditation and visualization, self-talk, I can, I can keep on going. Oh, I, I love all of it. Keep yeah. rolling, brother. Well, when you think of all these mental performance strategies, how important is it for leaders to invest into their mental performance? I mean, it, it's everything. That's the foundation to which the whole house is built. Um, you know, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big morning and evening routine guy. I believe in the bookends of the day because I think we have more control over the bookends than we do during the chaos of a normal day. Um, so more times than not, and I know every situation is different, uh, more times than not, you have a little more control during those times. Uh, now for me as a very amicably divorced father of three, it's a little sporadic when I don't have my children and it's just me and I'm a single bachelor at home, I have 100% control over what I do in the morning and what I do in the evening. Uh, when my kids are with me, then I have less control because obviously I'm, I'm, I'm there for them. Um, but I'm a big morning routine guy. And for me, one, I love laying the foundation for the rest of my day with what I do in the first 30 minutes when I wake up. And I've been tweaking my morning routine for years. And right now, 
it's the best morning routine for me that I've stumbled upon. And, and I'm always looking for new stuff. I told you I'm a student of the game and a student of life. So uh, I'm hoping that a year from now, my morning routine has, has grown and developed. Uh, but right now, uh, the moment I wake up and I have the luxury of very rarely needing to use an alarm clock because unless I have a super early flight, I don't ever have to get up. So I just let my body naturally wake me up. Now, I put myself to bed usually 10, 10.30 at night, and I'm on East Coast time, so I naturally wake up about 6 or 6.30. That, that works for me, so I'm still somewhat of an early riser, uh, but I wake up. Uh, the very first thing I do is I make my bed. Um, I just think starting my day with a simple act of discipline uh, is a great foundational step. Uh, I do some breath work. Uh, which I learned at a retreat that I went to a few months ago. Um, and it, it includes some some kind of bouncing and some moving. So I'm getting my heart rate up. I'm getting a little bit of a sweat going, uh, but I'm doing some intense breathing work. Uh, and then I follow that by several minutes of stretching and some yoga poses. And, and all of this is done in silent. Like I'm not, I'm not playing Rocky in the background. This is just me and my thoughts, which I desperately need. And I love to have right in the beginning of the day. Uh, then as soon as that's done, um, I choose to follow the Headspace uh, guided meditation app. Um, I'm definitely no expert meditator and I, I like being guided through it, uh, for 10 minutes. And then as soon as that's done, uh, I take a cold shower for three or four minutes. And I know that sounds borderline psychotic, uh, but it's, there's a, there's, first of all, there's a lot of health benefits to cold shower and cold water therapy. Uh, and you can just Google those if you're interested. Uh, but I also like it for two other reasons. One, it's a very distinct pattern interrupt. So it, it wakes me up. It's, it's, the, the shower itself absolutely sucks. I'll never pretend that I like the shower, <laughs> but the moment I turn the water off, it is invigorating and it is such an awesome way to start the day. And the other reason I do it, uh, and this is the biggest cross I have to bear at present. I mean, no matter how much of this stuff I study and I live and I learn, I still have some very deeply rooted limiting beliefs and I'm trying to get over those, uh, because on a conscious level, I do believe there's a lot of things that I can do on a very deep, insecure, unconscious level. Uh, there, there's still some fear there. You know, if, if you were to tell me right now at this current stage in my life, if you're like, Alan, I'm training to do a hundred mile road race, it's going to take me 24 hours to run, but I'm going to do it. My initial gut thought would be, I can't do that hundred miles. Oh my God, I can't do that. I did a marathon in 2001. That thing almost killed me. And you're talking about four times that. Yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> right. And I'm, and I'm trying to get over that because whether or not I can actually run a hundred miles is irrelevant. I might not be able to, but I don't like having this defeatist mentality that I'm not even going to try or that I don't think I can. So back to the cold showers, uh, they suck. I don't want to do them. In fact, if you ask most people to take a cold shower in the morning, their response is, oh, I can't do that. So to me, I'm going to slowly start to erode these negative beliefs by doing a little something every day that sucks, that I don't want to do, that I don't think I can do, and I'm going to keep doing that over time to chip away at this. And, and, and I'm hoping that as I embrace the suck and do some of these things, that over time, when someone tells me they're doing a 100-mile road race, I go, okay, when are you doing it? Because I might do that too. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's requiring vulnerability for me to tell you and all of your listeners, people I've never met, that here motivational speaker and super positive, optimistic Allen Stein Jr. has limiting <laughs> beliefs. Right, right. But I do. And, and, I'm, and I'm trying to face them head on and I'm trying to do the internal work to break through them. Um, and then after that cold shower, so from the moment I wake up, make my bed. I forgot to say drink a, a glass of water uh, and I do my breath work. I do my meditation. I do my stretches. I do my cold shower. It is 30 minutes on the dot from start to finish. And then whatever takes place after that is cool in the gang with me because I've already set the tone and I've set my frame for the rest of the day. And it has been, I know it's very cliche to say, it has been a game changer. Wow. I love it. I, I mean, when you think about routines, right? I mean, they, they get us, they get us going in the right direction they set our mindset, they set our intention. But when we're working with athletes and even when we're working with corporate professionals, I call them corporate athletes, what is your routine? You know, do we just go up and show up to whatever it is and hope? And I have a hard time when we're competing and performing that word hope. Uh, I don't want you to hope anything. I want you to know. <laughs> exactly. Right? Uh, if you if you don't if you don't have a house, you don't have shelter, you don't have food, you don't have you know, any clothes, okay, get it. I want you to source all the hope in the world. But when it comes to performing, 
I want you to know. And a lot of the times that knowing that confidence comes from having a routine. And sometimes that routine starts the night before. Sometimes it's right when you get out of bed. But having that routine is, is huge. Well, I have a really good friend uh, named Babe Kwasniak. He's an amazing high school basketball coach in the Cleveland area. Uh, and, and he was, you know, he fought for our country. He was in the army. Uh, and he says all of the time, and I don't know if it's his or someone else took it, but hope is not a strategy. Yeah. Like, if that's what you're leaning on, you're in trouble. It is not a strategy. And, you know, uh, there's so much value to that. So everything you just said was 100% on point. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I definitely want to get into your book because I know you just released your book last week, Raise Your Game. Uh, I can't wait to get my hands on it because I know it's freshly in in the bookstore here and also on Amazon. But I uh, want to just have you share with me a little bit, what what is this book about and what motivated you to write this book? Well, it's a light read. As your listeners have gathered quickly, uh, I'm not a high academic, so it's not a high academic book. It's a light read that that I believe is really filled with all of the ins and outs of everything you and I have had and you know talked about in this discussion. I mean, it's you know ranging from the the traits of emotional intelligence to what it takes to be a great leader, what it takes to be a great teammate, what it takes to have a thriving organization. Uh, and I wrote it very distinctly that it can help those in the athletic world. Uh, so players and coaches, it's right in your wheelhouse, but I also wrote it strategically so that if you're an entrepreneur or an executive or you're in the corporate world, it very much applies to you. And um, almost all of the uh, basketball and sports references are firsthand stories that I've experienced and then uh, did some research on the business side. So there's plenty of business examples in there as well. And and I really believe coaches and athletes should be learning from uh, executives and entrepreneurs and winning cultures in business just as much as businesses are learning, you know, from folks in the sports world, which that's been going on forever. You know, hiring an, an elite athlete or an elite coach to come in and give your keynote talk, that's been going on forever. But I don't see very many coaches bringing in entrepreneurs and executives to come talk to their teams. Ah. And I think they should. There's a tremendous amount of value uh, there. And it's, it is, it's very, it's very reciprocal uh, between both groups. Um, the reason for writing the book, there's a few reasons. Uh, one, it was always a professional bucket list item of mine. You know, ever since college, I hated reading in high school and college, loathed it. And after some introspection to realize that was always because other people were telling me what to read. And I don't want other people telling me what to read any more than I want other people telling me what to wear. So as soon as I got out of college and I realized <laughs> I can read anything that I want, I became a voracious reader. And I've, I read books by the dozens every single year. And there have been a handful of books that have had a really profound impact on my life, books that have, have changed my perspective, uh, my way of thinking. And the thought that I could potentially write something that could add value to another human being where they think slightly differently after reading something that I wrote, that, that was something that was important to me. I think that that could be, you know, it's, it's a gift to be able to give that to someone else. And I'm forever indebted and grateful for all of the authors who've written things that have had a positive impact on my life. And it would be really cool and fulfilling if my book could do that for someone else. Uh, that was one reason. Uh, the other reason was I was leaving the basketball community after almost 20 years where I had built up decent credibility and, and name recognition. And I was entering the corporate world where I had zero, I mean, zero brand recognition. Nobody knew me from Adam and the book would help add to my credibility. It would, it would, it would help substantiate my work and my message uh, because people make the inference that if you have a book, you know what you're talking about, which clearly is not always the case, <laughs> but I knew that right. it would help establish credibility uh, in this area. And, uh, then the, the third reason was that it will actually pump the main driver of my business, which is professional speaking. And the book's only been out a week and it's already done that. I've already picked up a couple of speaking engagements because the the chatter about the book has attracted someone to it. And even though they haven't read the full book, they got just enough of it that they said, okay, we want to bring this guy in and talk about this stuff to our company or our team. So it, it will be a driver for my business. And and then it's it's a it's it's kind of circular because now when I go speak, then I also tell people that I have a book and it's a great reinforcement tool. So, you know, in this 60-minute keynote. If you liked what I had to say, then you might want to grab the book because it's more of what I have to say. And mm. same thing with this podcast. I mean, if this is resonating with anyone listening, 
I think they should buy my book and certainly get yours when it comes out in April because it's just going to be more of this stuff. And, and I say that, you know, uh, shamelessly, I don't mind plugging my own book because I believe in it. Yeah. I put a lot of work into it and I believe that it will help people. Um, it has nothing to do with, with money. It has nothing to do with fame or prestige uh, because the book's not going to bring me either one of those things. I ain't getting rich off of this book and I'm not going to be famous because of it, but I believe in right. the principles behind it. And I would read this book if someone else wrote it. And that's why I have no problem sharing it with others. Beautiful. Well said, well said, you know, when you think about this book, when I don't know how long it took for you to write it, but when you reflect on the process of writing this book, what do you think you learned most about yourself? Thankfully, I had the self-awareness to realize that I'm not a writer. I'm, I'm, I'm a coach. Uh, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not what I would call a writer. So I actually hired a co-author and I had, I mean, he was the consummate teammate. John was amazing. And, and I hired him to help me with the structure and the organization, uh, and the framework of putting this book together. So I was the content behind all of it. I mean, they're my stories, they're my lessons They're you know, but John was the perfect teammate and used his strengths as a professional writer with my strengths as a professional storyteller, coach, teacher and, and putting that together is probably one of the reasons that I've had an absolute blast doing this book. I know for most people that write the book on their own, I mean, it's really challenging. That is a lot of work to put a book together and it certainly wasn't easy for me, but I will say that a lot of the heavy lifting uh, became easier because I had a great teammate. So looking back and knowing that I had the self-awareness to say, Hey, I'm not a writer. I'm, I mean, I write well enough to do some blogs and stuff, but I'm not the type of guy that sits down and says, okay, chapter one, here we go. <laughs> right. So, so thankfully that helped the process immensely, but it also, I mean, that took some humility and vulnerability because, you know, even though it's, it's my name everywhere as the author, which I am, and, and, and he is a co-author, um, you know, it took some humility to say, hey, I've wanted to write a book my whole life, and now I'm going to share that with somebody else. But it was 100% the right move, and, and, and John was an absolutely brilliant teammate. Uh, but every word that you'll read in that book is mine, and it's from me. I think we're, we're cut from the same cloth, and, and we have the same perspective on stuff. Because I, when I was writing my book, uh, I had a co-author as well. It, it would have taken me 15 years to write this book. But for me, it was, I, as I was writing, it was the f funnest thing to work with somebody that got my voice, but it was really cool to go, wow, man, I'm, I'm being really vulnerable and I'm throwing some, some pretty cool stuff out there, but also these, there's some intimate stories as an athlete and a coach that I'm sharing with everyone. And then I started going, well, what if people don't, what if they didn't see that, this experience the way that I saw it? And then I just said, screw it, because it's mine, <laughs> you know? But Absolutely. It was, it was a little liberating, but, but the whole process was cool. And, and it's, um, I'm thankful for people out there that are ghostwriters or co-authors that do the heavy lifting, because it's, it's not easy at all. Well, you know, one of the decisions that had to be made, and there, there is a, a, a distinct difference, and I don't think there's a right or a wrong to any of it. So this does not come from a place of judgment. Everyone needs to do what's best for them. But, but by definition, a ghostwriter they're just completely behind the scenes. They won't get any credit for the book and that's right. fine. And, and I considered going that route. Um, but then I thought, no, you know, for me and especially the portions of the book that I'm talking about, how important teamwork is and how important it is to build your organization, like a puzzle, you know, like a jigsaw puzzle where everyone's got a different piece, but they all fit together. So for me, uh, cause John was willing to be a, a ghostwriter and his name would not be on the front of the book and he would have done all the back leg work. But for me, it just, it wasn't a good fit to being authentic to who I was and to what the book was. And, and I know lots of people that have written books that have used ghostwriters and, and I have no problem with it. So like I said, it's not from a place of judgment, but that was one of the first parts of the discussion because we originally were going down the path of him being a ghostwriter. And I was like, no man, that, that just doesn't feel right to me because you're a, you're a big part of this book. I mean, you're the teammate, man. You're the one throwing me the assist. I might be the one dunking it, but I'm not getting there without you throwing the assist. So it, it's funny because by his nature, he likes to be in the background. I mean, he even says, and, and be funny if he's listening to this episode, he's like, you know, I don't even want you mentioning me when you promote the book. Like, <laughs> like I, I don't want any of that. This, I do what I love, which is right, but this is your book. These are your words and I might organize them, but it's your book and they're your words. And, and, and really, I mean, I've done probably 60 podcast interviews in the last three months. 
this might be the only one that that I've actually mentioned John by name. Um, just, again, most of that's because that was his preference. But right. yeah, for me, it was just it was just a better fit, and and I want every word of this this book and what went into it to be authentic. And the neat part about the book, you know, it's only a week old. It's it's one week birthday today. I've gotten some great chatter on social media and some good buzz and sales have been great. Uh, but that's just based off of people who are supporting me and my work. Mm. Hardly anybody's read the book yet because the thing just came out a week ago. And even the most voracious readers usually not reading an entire book the moment it comes out. So the next step, which I'll be very keen to is over the next couple months and people are actually reading the book. And then what type of feedback does it get? You know, does it pick up momentum because the more they read it, the more they want to share it, or does it start to die down? It's like, oh, okay, well, glad we read that. You just, you just never know. But the proof will be in the pudding. I mean, because I wanted this book to be timeless. I wanted it to be something that if someone stumbled upon it three years from now, they would go, wow, this is a, this is a good book that's adding value to my life. So we'll see. And no matter what the feedback, I'm not going to take it personal. If, if the book doesn't do extraordinarily well as far as people offering feedback and sharing it with others, that's simply feedback. And I'll learn from that. And, and I'm already going to do a second book and I'll learn from the feedback. So I won't take any of it personal, yeah. but the next few months in particular will be really fascinating to see what happens. And I know lots of books, you know, uh, I'm friends with John Gordon, um, brilliant speaker and author. I mean, he, he pumps out books like, uh, I mean, oh, like nothing I've ever seen tons. the energy bus and the energy bus was out for seven years before it started to pick up any steam. And the reason it's been able to pick up steam is because it's a really good book. Um, but same thing. So, you know, I'm probably not going to be on Oprah tomorrow, but if in a couple months or a couple years from now, the book is still doing well. And when I mean, well, has nothing to do with money. It just has to do with are people reading it and sharing it with others. Yeah. We live in a very social climate right now. If someone reads a book and does not tell anyone else about it, they did not like the book. They can, they can smile at you because they're your friend. They did not like the book if they don't share it with others. And so that's, that will be really neat in the next phase after kind of this honeymoon phase of the book being released is over. Man, I, I can't wait to read it. And, and with that being said, how do my listeners, where do they buy your book and how can they follow you on social media? Well, if they go to raiseyourgamebook.com, uh, there's some additional insight and some extra stuff on there, but, but they can, there's links to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Target, Walmart, uh, anywhere they'd want to get the book online, they can get it raiseyourgamebook.com. Uh, it is in stores, but it's select. Uh, I mean, interesting enough, I live a hundred yards away from a Barnes and Noble and they're not carrying my book. And yet three miles away at another Barnes and Noble, uh, they have five of them on the first day. So wow. it's a little bit hit or miss. So if somebody goes to their bookstore, uh, if they have it, awesome. Please please grab a copy. If they don't, do me a favor and ask the store manager if they would carry it. Because most of them, when a, a customer asks for a book, they'll order it. Because brick-and-mortar stores do not want to lose customers. So uh, that would be a great way to help us all out. And uh, if anyone's interested in anything else I have going on, you can just go to allensteinjr.com. And I'm at Allenstein Jr. Uh, on Instagram, LinkedIn, on all of the major social channels. And I love dialogue. So if this resonated with you, you know, drop me a line on, on social media and let's have some dialogue. Beautiful. Alan, this has been awesome. This has been a treat to have you on my show. Having you just share your perspective and your energy. I mean, I can feel it through the microphone here. And I know that my listeners are going to feel it too. And I just um, I'm excited to share this content and just to share your book and how you think about uh, developing leaders. It, this has just been a, an awesome episode, and, and thank you for being on my show. Absolutely. Feelings mutual, my friend. I had a great time, Grant. Beautiful. Beautiful.